This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. When introducing a guest and their topic here on This Is Hell, we have never done so by reading the first few words of an author's work. However, as today's guest starts their writing with exactly what you might think of the concept of abolishing the family at first blush, it's appropriate to quote their writing here. Their work begins, quote, Abolish the family? You might as well abolish gravity or abolish God. So... Left is trying to take grandma away now and confiscate kids, and this is supposed to be progressive? What the hell? Except today's guest does not use the word hell, but a far more appropriate profanity that starts with F and rhymes with my first name, Chuck. Look, I love my family, and likely you do yours too. Or maybe not. But we're supposed to, and if we do not, then society insists there must be something wrong with us. But as our guest today points out, the family is where most of the rape happens on this earth. And most of the murder, too. No one is likely to rob, bully, blackmail, manipulate, or hit you, or inflict unwanted touch than family. Logically, announcing an intention to treat you like family, as so many airlines, restaurants, banks, retailers, and workplaces do, ought to register as a horrible threat. As guests have mentioned in previous interviews here on This Is Hell, the real danger is not stranger danger. And as we will discuss in a few minutes, the real danger comes from within the home. Today, we will have, we're very happy to have the return of writer, theorist, and recovering academic Sophie Lewis, who will be on to discuss her new book on the day I believe it is being published. Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. You may remember Sophie being on the show back in July of 2019 to talk about her book, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. And that interview and that book were chosen by our listeners as their favorites to be featured on the show back in 2019, so we replayed them over the holiday season that year. You can find that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. If you're running to your radio or cell phone or computer or however you listen to the show, because you are absolutely 100% certain you will not agree with, nor can you condone a conversation on such a proposal as abolishing the family, prepare yourself to be surprised. The reason I say that is, Following our last conversation with Sophie, a listener stopped me in the bar downstairs, a self-described family man, who told me he was thoroughly predisposed in opposition to that conversation on feminism against family. But by the time the discussion was over, they told me that their mind was thoroughly blown and he started viewing his own family in a completely new, different, and better way. As a member of the faculty of Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, And thanks to everybody at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. We even had a member join us for our anniversary party, driving all the way from Brooklyn to here last month. Uh, Sophie teaches courses on feminist, trans, and queer politics and philosophy, including family abolitionism with the Out of the Woods Writing Collective. Sophie contributed to the 2020 collection Hope Against Hope, Writings on 
ecological crisis. Sophie is a visiting scholar at the Alice Paul Center for Research on Gender, Sexuality, and Women at the University of Pennsylvania. And as I said, a member of the teaching faculty of the Philadelphia branch of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Sophie is nevertheless a freelance writer dependent on public speaking and Patreon. And you can show your support for Sophie and her work by going to patreon.com slash reproutopia. Reprotopia. Her lectures are archived at lasophielle.org. Lasophielle.org. And you can follow Sophie on Twitter at reprotopia. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, you could not do the show last week because you had COVID. So more important than anything else, how are you feeling and how bad was it? I'm okay. I'm pretty mucusy. Oh, you nice. You can probably hear it in my voice. Um, that was kind of my major symptom. Um, it was pretty bad, like, for one day uh, with fever and pain. But after what kind that... Of, what, do mean, what do you mean by pain? Where, where were you having pain? Like, achy pain all over, you Oh, know? no kidding. Like, yeah, like, my back and my... Yeah, just... Uh, I didn't, and I I was listening to the show, and I think it was Ada was saying that she also had COVID, and was like she, you know, she didn't want to stretch. That's how it made me very lazy, you know. Like I'm like, I realized I probably had medicine in my car, but I was like, I'm not sure, so I I just didn't go check, and then I found it yesterday, and I was like, oh, like I would have felt better so much. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to explain, but. My friend who exposed me uh, went oh, to so the you... hospital, so uh, <laughs> I was doing better than them. So you know how you got it then? Yeah, so actually, like Friday, my friend texts me and it's like, I'm, I have to go to the hospital. Like, I can't stop throwing up. I think it's because you gave me a little bit of raw milk yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that can't be because I had way more raw milk than you and I'm not throwing up. So it must be something else. Um, and like, they also had a fever and chills and all this stuff, but the, the hospital didn't test them for COVID. And they were like delirious, so they didn't ask to be tested for COVID. And I don't know, maybe they were blaming it on the milk, so they didn't think it was COVID. But then two days later, I started to feel weird and I had COVID tests. So I was like, I'll take one. And I didn't think it was going to be positive, but it was positive instantly. <laughs> like five seconds later, it was like, you have COVID. And so I told her and then the hospital checked her. For COVID and she had it <laughs> so I got COVID like two days after she had gone to the hospital she'd you, been at my apartment the night before you would think that as soon as you get in the hospital one of the first things they do is give you a COVID test you would think you would but think here it they don't uh and this was in Evanston um and uh but also another friend of mine told me that she had monkeypox and she did not know where she got it I didn't I haven't been around them but yeah, I just feel like that needs to be. <laughs> wow. Like, because for one thing, they're saying women women don't get monkeypox. It's just men who have sex with men, right? But, like, I, yeah, I don't, it's, I don't know. Who wow. knows? That is crazy. They're okay, though. They didn't have, like, a super intense case. Like, you know, their immune system handled it pretty well, but. Did they have to go to the hospital for monkeypox? No, they, like, didn't, they didn't know they had, like, they were, like, something is off, like, I have these like 
zits all over my body that don't seem like zits and I never get zits like and they keep showing up like uh, you know they kind of come they kind of spread across your body like uh, they don't all show up at once and uh, and she's telling me about it and she's like saying other people were telling her not to freak out but I was like I don't know <laughs> I saw some TikToks and it sounded a lot <laughs> like that like, and so she sent me a picture and I was like honestly looks exactly what I saw on TikTok like from a woman who also didn't know how she got it and it, like you know, probably was from like hotel sheets or something. I don't wow. know. You know. Jesus um, but you, you know, but so <laughs> wow. I'm gonna try and look into getting this vaccine if I have to, you know, be a man for a day or two. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna get the smallpox vaccine. <laughs> wow, wow. So Lindsay, let's <laughs> that's just crazy what you've been through. So Remind us, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Oh, it's about your birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much, Lindsay. If you have your exact birth time, we can look up your birth chart later. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't have my... I, I actually went and found my original copy, which is in a really There's no shape. time on it? There's no time. No! I know. Isn't that annoying? Does your, your, your mother tell you at some point? like? Uh, she told me I was a morning child. And I was hoping that she meant like in the morning as opposed to me mourning as I came out of her womb. <laughs> I think we all do that. <laughs> um, but anyways, this week's question from Hal is, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Then This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring uh, dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We don't take any grant money, we refuse any commercial sponsor, and we don't make enough profits to afford to be a not-for-profit. So remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. We got a message from listener Robert, who writes, What's that book from the guests you're going to have about the family? I'm curious about it. Sometimes I have to wonder about some of these constructs. I don't really do family myself. I mean, I got some people that I'm related to, and I go out and visit them, but I can't wait till that podcast comes up. I pretty much have a tradition where I listen to This Is Hell on WNUR here in Chicago every Saturday from 9 a.m. till 1 p.m. in the after, till 1 in the afternoon, until unless it gets preempted by some dumb Northwestern football game. But you know I like it, and I always feel like I'm informed about something. So you know, I like the big alcohol interview with James Wilt that you had a few weeks ago, and basically, you know you have guests that really get people to think, and you know that's a good thing, because not many people really do that these days. Maybe they do, but you know I try to. Ha, ha, ha. And I like that interview about Sturgis, South Dakota. You know, a lot of people don't think about this kind of stuff. 
Robert writes, uh, basically, I like your show, and I always look forward to hearing it every Saturday. What's that sound bite at the end of your show where you have the guy and he talks about how he's got something up his butt? That is not what he says. Uh, it sounds familiar, and at first, at first, I was thinking it was Wesley Willis, but you know, after listening to a couple of Wesley Willis songs, I realized that wasn't him. Thanks for the message, Robert. Really appreciate it. The book you are asking about is the book we will be discussing with its author, Sophie Lewis. So stay tuned in and for in a, just a couple minutes for that. The Sturgis interview Robert mentioned is one we did back in January of this year with historian Catherine McNichol Stock, who wrote the article. Is the rally really worth it? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism, which was posted at the website of Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective. Finally, Robert and everyone listening, the voice at the end is Wesley Willis. When Wesley was on the show back in the summer of 1998, I believe, a show you can only find by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. All you have to do is subscribe and then search on Wesley's name at our Patreon page. You, too, can message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter, or email us at chuckatthisishell.com with your constructive and destructive criticism, your personal thoughts and reflections, as well as guest and topic ideas. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Sophie. Again, the question from hell is, what should our beloved host do with his life? Now that he is finally old enough to drink, what should our beloved host, Chuck, do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? We will also have This Week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. And under our current capitalist-fueled definition of family... Our family is property, which can have a really horrible impact on the way family members treat each other and understand concepts like what love and happiness mean. Here to help us have a better understanding of what the family is and what it could be, we are very, very happy to have back on the show writer, theorist, and recovering academic Sophie Lewis, who joins us to discuss her new book, Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sophie. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me back on. I'm looking so. I've been looking so forward to this information, this information, this interview, ever since I saw that you were having a new book coming out. This is yet another spectacular book because you talk about things in ways that I've never considered before. And the goal of this show, at least for me, and me, this is just me using the show for my own good, is I've tried to learn, and you have taught me so much from your earlier interview, and I learned a lot from this interview. I just want to repeat what I re- was reading during the introduction. Uh, we, are, we are in a few radio stations, so apologies for cleaning this up, but you open your new book with Abolish the Family. You might as well abolish gra- gravity or abolish God. So the left is trying to take grandma away now and confiscate kids, and this is supposed to be progressive. What the hell? But you use a far better and more appropriate uh, and accurate <laughs> profanity, beginning with the letter F. While your book comes out today, I believe, uh, I'm not certain how much feedback you've received yet. But considering your earlier work on feminism against family, how would you describe the feedback you get? Is it thoughtful? Is it constructive? Or is it just kind of mean and derisive? Well, you know what? Um, There's actually, you know, some really joyful 
incredibly moving responses. Um, I, one thing I did not expect about that previous book you mentioned, Full Surrogacy Now, was the number of people who sent me photos of it sort of face down in a maternity ward. You know, lots of people who were actually, you know, going through pregnancy, uh, apparently, you know, found the book with all of its, you know, um, quite grisly, very admiring, but certainly a little bit like challenging analysis of how gestating could be organized and how, how you know, dangerous and, and wrong the way we organize it is right now. Found, found it very, um, you know, helpful. And by the same token, um, I've been actually quite positively surprised by the number of people who do, um, you know, open themselves despite all of the emotional um, turmoil that a phrase like abolish the family causes to the possibility that care could be structured completely differently. Um, so yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that partly your question is, is thinking about, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the very knee jerk reactions, including, um, you know, some strands of the left are very, um, you know, dismissive, and I think perhaps, um, you know, uh, rightly frightened about the possibility that, you know, um, there's something alienating to some people about, um, you know, seeming to advocate against the only source of, you know, protection against police, protection against state violence, you know, respite from exploitation in the market, you know, that people have, right? That's what it appears to be doing, calling for, you know, for abolition of the the family. And then some on the left believe that the, the family is um, a genuine sort of sanctuary away from capitalism and away from neoliberalization of everything, you know, and that's, um, you know, that's a a wrong view, <laughs> in my, you know, in my opinion, um, and uh, you know, we can talk about that. But yeah, there is there is a bit of hostility even on the left. I would say, even you know, uh, even though if you if you if this kind of thing matters to you, um, you know, Marx and Engels said it right. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily the most compelling argument in the world, and you know, but. Uh, if we wanted to have that argument, you know, Chuck, I would, I would win. It is orthodox Marxism to talk about abolishing the family. <laughs> um, but then, of course, we need to discuss what abolition means, right? And we can, um, we can talk about abolition as a building thing, certainly not primarily a destructive thing. And that would, that would be something that, you know, puts us in conversation with all the other abolitionists you know, who have brought the word abolition back into a kind of vogue, right, in the 21st century, um, in talking about the prison industrial complex and, and um, you know, the police and how burning down all the police stations and all the prisons today would be one thing, and it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing, but it would not be abolition, right? Because abolition is about building um, and realizing the, 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 the promise that the thing that you're talking about um, you know, purports to deliver, you know, so justice, right? Um, or, 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 or security. Um, and, and, and obviously, 
that infrastructure of police and prisons does the opposite of keep of keep us actually safe, right? So abolition would mean building a world in which justice really exists in our relationships with one another. And that by the same token, there's a dream about family that we all have when we say to one another, you know, your family, um, you know, we mean something actually a little bit utopian, I would say. And so talking about abolishing the family would be about actually holding on to that, that desire that we have and thinking about how it might actually be manifested for real. So is our idea of the family more based on reality or is it based on a hope of what we want the family to be? I think it's based on a hope. Um, there's, um, there's a funny kind of sort of half consciousness we have, I think, in our in Western culture about the disappointment of, of, of the promise of family, the way that the promise doesn't actually deliver, right? If you think about basically almost, you know, the majority of TV shows, novels, movies, you know, about family, there's a sort of satirical recognition that um, that, that hope we invest in family doesn't really deliver in practice, right? Um, I'm not sure what the role of that satire and that that tendency to actually, you know, acknowledge, um, you know, tacitly, you know, almost quietly among ourselves, with a chuckle, you know, that that family is 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 just disappointing. <laughs> what it does, whether it precludes us actually seriously getting together and thinking about how we could change it, right? How we could actually do things differently. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, the hope of family is that we will be truly unconditionally held, you know, that that the uh, all of the contingency and, um, and uh, you know, exploitation of this, of this capitalist reality will have some kind of um, mitigation, you know, um, through the, yeah, the, the, the uncontaminated love that that we will find somehow in this in this little pocket of intimacy, um, but um, yeah, as I you know uh, as I was kind of intimating a minute ago, um, we have to be real about how the family is not outside of capitalism, which is not to say love isn't real that happens inside the family, right? Like, uh, you know, on the contrary, um, I I actually you know agree with with people who who feel attached um to the to the concept of family that you know a lot of the best things we have going on as human beings does does also take place in this in this location where um you know uh we are not universally safe like and and also a lot of violence happens with impunity um and it's set up in such a way that violence can happen with impunity. But at the same time, there, you know, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of the best stuff we have going on, which is, you know, maybe a, a, a bar we could raise, right? A bar we could raise. But, you know, when we wipe our children's noses and teach them how to speak and spend time with them, um, that, you know, that that's that's real love, right? When in the 70s, there's this famous sort of statement by the Wages for Housework Committee, who had some Marxist feminists who had a sort of international network 
that really sought to explode what they called the social factory, i.e. the, you know, the other factory that go that is the sort of shadow side of, you know, the factory, <laughs> the capitalist family. So, so the capitalist factory and the capitalist family make one whole, they said. And the unwaged work that housewives were doing in that social factory, they said, you know, needed to be liberated and uh, deprivatized, right? And so calling for wages was a sort of impossible demand that was seeking something, something beyond, something beyond the world of work and family, which they said was one whole. And they said, famously, they say it is love, we say it is unwaged work, right? And they're talking about these these uh, these activities of cooking and parenting and caring and all of this. And people were very upset, at, um, you know, 50 years ago, saying, oh, my God, you know, you, you're saying there's no love in, in, in the labor of mothering. And they were not saying that, right? That's, that's something that, that people are projecting onto the statement. They're not saying there's no love there. They are saying that the love itself that is present doesn't negate the fact that it is work. And we should dream of a world in which the love that we do have within us could be amplified, maybe lifted into something even more powerful, even more profound, like a red, a red love um, is also a, a phrase that, you know, for a hundred years, people like Alexandra Kollontai have been, have been raising because the, the, the transformation of our love into work by capitalism, the stealing of our love by capitalism is the problem, right? And that the, and love and work are woven together very fine in the family. Uh, and that is something we, we, we could contest, right? We, it, it's, it's not about sort of rejecting the labor of mothering, but actually on the contrary, imagining what the, the many gendered labor of mothering organized collectively, creatively, and in a comradely way that doesn't treat children as property or as exclusive sort of reproductions of ourselves, but, you know, maybe as, as comrades almost, what that, what that labor of mothering um, could be. Um, yeah. <laughs> And you, you, earlier we were talking about uh, the left response that you had to your earlier work. And you write, ever since the European labor movement won the male breadwinner household for itself in the 1890s, socialists have cleaved to the romantic idea of the working class provider whose dependent nest mates, grandpa, grandma, uh, woman, brats, unwed sister-in-law, are all happily identified with what he does by way of work. Why are even socialists cleaved to the idea of the working class provider? Why doesn't their socialist beliefs lead to or spark a consideration of an alternative to family? What does that lack of examination of the family by those who believe in socialism say about the power of the concept of family? Yeah, well, it's um, it's a little bit of a mystery. I don't have a sort of simple statement to explain why, right? I think, you know, we have to interrogate um, why in the absence of a strong, you know, socialist feminism or, um, you know, more broadly speaking, a really convincing, you know, communist utopian offer to the proletariat in this moment um, to, to, to 
to sort of counterbalance the rather alarming um, kind of ethno-nationalist and even sort of fascoid fascist offers being made right now. You know, why, you know, I, I mean, I'm just saying, Chuck, like I, I, I was in a hotel room recently because I get to go around and do talks right now, which is pretty amazing, pretty, pretty glamorous life. And I'm never, you know, so I turned on this TV and I was seeing Tucker Carlson make a point about which I don't recommend, right? I, I did change the channel as fast <laughs> as I could. But, you know, but I was struck by how he was using the word bosses, right? He was talking about bosses. He was talking about, he was tapping into the desire that people have in this moment of great resignation, quote unquote, right? The big quit um, to, to not give away their lives in work. Um, great. <laughs> I mean, not great. It is not great when fascists are the ones talking about that, right? <laughs> um, because it's 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 a compelling sell. And I think in the absence of uh, dramatic enough results from movements like the one I was just mentioning, you know, this early 70s sort of wages for housework, militancies, um, the, the welfare radicals, um, the black feminist radicals calling for, um, you know, simply dollars, right? Not on the basis of, you know, respectability or um, maternal uh, virtue, but simply for the for the sake of, you know, um, people deserve uh, everything, right? <laughs> on this almost sort of anti-work um, and kind of almost anti-family insistence on on collective uh, deserving that, that, that existed in the 70s. You know, in the absence of, of successes from from that side, I think it kind of makes a little bit of sense for some women today who are still faced with a double shift. And by double shift, uh, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, I'm referring to the fact that, you know, feminized workers often have to go and sell their labor power in a formal workplace and then come home and put in another uh, five hours on, on unpaid, right? Um, doing disproportionate amounts of household um, management work, right? That double shift sucks. Um, and it, it, you know, it has been very tenacious um, despite the, the, the gains of feminism, right? Um, and I think the, the the rise of this kind of almost like trad wife imaginary, if you know what trad wives are, this kind of really pernicious kind of romanticization of a this 50s breadwinner, male breadwinner household that existed for a, a brief moment, um, including among, you know, sections of the working class, largely the middle class, um, after a bunch of sort of... Um, yeah, labor victories um, in in Europe in Europe and North America. That that romanticization has a sort of weird sort of logic to it in the sense that women are like, well, if if I'm gonna have to do the double shift and the double shift isn't going away, why? You know what? I'm just gonna quit the paid shift, you know, and go and go ahead and be um, a, a, a wife. And then, and then obviously there's a lot of contradictions on top of it, because I don't know why I'm talking to you about trad wives in response to your question, Chuck. <laughs> but, but I guess I'm trying to empathize a little bit with the attachment we have. Um, that that's maybe more on the right. So I, I, I shouldn't dodge your question. Maybe we just need to think about, um, 
yeah, the uh, the attraction on some level to um, to cooperation, right? Um, to to the idea that um, you know not everybody has to has to sort of you know work <laughs> work and work and work all the time um and and but but that we actually want to belong and collaborate that you know when i was a kid i used to play this card game um with my not very happy nuclear family that was called happy families and um that vision of a sort of um yeah petty bourgeois or or, or you know or maybe working class uh family with a sort of vocation um you know there was 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 what was being you know shared amongst us as we reunited all the cards in the deck into mommy daddy you know daughter and son um which is how you won the game you sort of reunified families that were sort of scattered in people's decks people's hands and um you know you had mr soot the the sweeper and his wife mrs soot and then there was miss and and master <laughs> and i i remember sort of very clearly how this romance was playing out in my mind as a child um because uh, that there was something sort of un unalienating or disalienating about the fantasy that you know um you already know what you are <laughs> you know it's sort of cosmically ordained um Weirdly, the historian Melinda Cooper, I mean, she doesn't talk about this card game, but she she evoked it to me as well by talking about the 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 fantasy that prevails under neoliberalism and neoconservatism both of um of almost like a family firm. And we, and that's what that's what um um the economist Emily Oster goes ahead and says last year, right? I'm sorry, I'm name dropping perhaps too many too many different names. Melinda Cooper is an academic with a book called Family Values, and that came out several years ago. But last year, um, The Economist, Emily Oster, came out with um, a book that pretty much just unironically um, sort of <laughs> like updated the the Happy Families card game from the 19th, from the, from, from the 19th century, which is saying like, run your family as a business. I think it's called The Family Firm. And it's about it's a sort of quote unquote data driven approach to kind of like optimizing um, your nuclear family as a as a parent as a, a parent CEO um, <laughs> and um, you know uh, uh, the the in a certain sense I, I was grateful for that happening horrified as I was because of of the way that it it um, yeah I guess it just kind of literalizes something that I've been wondering about. Um, you know the 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 how to make visible to people that the the family has never not been political it's never just been a natural organism that kind of proceeds automatically from the fact of of human childbirth you know what i mean um uh it, it we don't think about it a lot but you know the family is an economic institution um, and and to some extent, especially during phases of colonial um, progress, right, settler colonial advancement into, you know, for example, North American territories, the, the family is also a state institution. It's a colonial uh, mode of social reproduction that settler co colonists imposed on indigenous people via, you know, um, forcing marriage on them 
um, requiring there to be private properties with male heads of household for the purposes of administrative, um, um, you know, control. Um, and then after that sort of has been consolidated, you know, the, the, the family, uh, you know, proceeds to function as a source of immense amounts of uh, free labor for capitalism. Um, it's a very, very sort of uh, anti-social way of organizing the labor of care, isn't it, right? And, and we could even talk about that in ecological terms because of the multiplication over and over and over and over and over again in every single tiny cell of an apartment block of you know the 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 washing machine you know um the dishwasher the laundry the cooking everything sort of um maximally um you know inefficient in a way for it, uh, for 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 the world and for people and for society but very handy for 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 bosses um who get um who get their workers kind of manufactured for free <laughs> I, I i don't you need to interrupt me chuck i'm a blabbermouth <laughs> <laughs> i was just going to say you were mentioning this and uh, so i want to touch on it real quickly how dependent do you think capitalism is whatever success capitalism has how dependent do you think that is on the free labor that's provided by the family is is can, can is that a, an, a crucial part of the success of whatever success capitalism has had that free labor because in the past capitalism especially here in the United States but globally as well has had success unfortunately based on free labor so how dependent is today's capitalism on that free labor that is provided by the family yeah you know that's a fantastic question um, I think there are some really important debates going on right now um, on the left um, about whether capitalism could function um, to some extent without the private nuclear household. Um, it's, I think it's a little bit of an open question. I think, well, people have different views on the necessity of it, but I don't think anyone would dispute that the current um, configuration of capitalism depends to, to a massive extent on the family. The thing about capitalism, which I know at the top of your show, you rather um, <laughs> optimistically call late, right? <laughs> like I'm with you as a, as a, as a repro-utopian and a critical utopianist interested in the tradition of critical utopianism, i.e., you know, truly rejecting the, the things that are handed down to us as as natural and unchangeable, you know, I'm I, I'm absolutely optimistic that that um, you know, that capitalism is not going to be here forever. We, you know, we will win, um, and it, you know, we'd better win because there could be something. Who knows? Maybe even worse than capitalism, right? <laughs> That's thinkable or possible. It doesn't bear thinking about. But you know, I I think capitalism is crafty. And we can't rule out the possibility that it could reinvent itself in in such a way um, that, you know, let's say a much larger proportion of people lived in dormitories or warehouses or, um, you know, that that that's. Um, you know, that that is something we, we should we should try and consider. Right. Um, because not 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 everyone lives in a private uh, nuclear household, obviously, and that, um, in fact, in a weird way, quite few people do live in the ideal form, you know, 
promulgated by, uh, well, you know, it goes back uh, several centuries, but, you know, Margaret Thatcher is, the, is who I was thinking of, um, who, who proudly stated um, that there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families, right? Um, which, um, you know, paradoxically is um, <laughs> is sort of, what the Marxist feminists in the 80s, Michelle Barrett and Mary McIntosh say, uh, but from a very opposite perspective, like the reason that um, the social is so um, impoverished um, is the, 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 the sort of technology of the family, right? Which we don't think of, as I keep saying, you know, as... Um, as an unnatural thing, we think of it as deeply natural. Um, but 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 Michelle Barrett and, and Mary McIntosh in their book, The Anti-Social Family, are asking us to consider that it is actually um, this this privatization of care that we call, you know, the family that is sort of choking out the social, the 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 sociality that we might be uh, engaging in. Uh, were it not for the fact that this um, this familism um, at the heart of our ethics kind of um, sucks up um, all of our expectations of sort of kinship and uh, nurture and you know um, mother love and good things to eat all of that you know the 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 ways that we in fact uh, need right the way we experience our needs. Um, and the way we experience our expectations, um, what we allow ourselves to expect um, and to deserve is deeply tied to the family. And and, and I love this text uh, from the midst of Thatcherism um, on this sort of <laughs> rainy crypto-fascist island that I'm currently on <laughs> on the publication day <laughs> of my... Uh, my little utopian manifesto, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about them. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you can still tell that it wasn't many days ago that people were, you know, celebrating the, uh, oh, the supposed grandmother of us all, you know, Elizabeth II, um, and her deeply, you know, eugenicist um, family, you know, um, whose kind of, you know, cosmic uh, laws of primogeniture and, you know, descendants. And, um, you know, we, we, we're we all taught about and we all sort of understand, you know, and, and it's, it's, it completely baffles me and blows my mind that, that, um, that uh, I have to say, it's one of my more pessimistic uh, and nonplussed kind of, um, like, I don't have the answers. Like, thoughts the popularity of the british royal family which you know even the the the, the you know the, the tv series the crown just showed so deeply you know is a machine for producing misery even even amongst themselves especially maybe amongst themselves you know <laughs> not that not that the monarchy doesn't inflict misery on you know, on vast swathes of the global population historically and, and, and even even today, you know, but but in a weird way, I was watching this this relatively uncritical TV series of The Crown at one point for my sins and, and the contemplating like, wow, you know, even with all the violence that they wreak, 
you know, <laughs> the, 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 the misery of that archetypal family, right? Uh, internal to itself. It's just really something to, to behold, isn't it? Like the sheer nastiness and sheer depths of, of uncared forness that, that exists inside the royal family. Anyway, I'm really digressing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the things I really enjoy about your book and your earlier book as well is that you reconsider, you reexamine, you analyze things that people usually don't. And in this book, it's family, it's happiness, and it's even love. And you write, I will hazard a definition of love. To love a person is to struggle for their autonomy as well as for their immersion and care in, insofar as such abundance is possible in a world choked by capital. So I know this is a big picture question, but how does capital interfere with love? How does capital interfere with the love that is supposed to be you know, guaranteed within the family? Well, um, yeah, I, I suppose um, there is, that's a great question. Gosh, I, I'm trying to just pause and think about how the most useful way to answer it might be. Um, yeah, well, when Alexandra Kollontai, who was a sort of left Bolshevik, was trying to analyze this exact question um, slightly over 100 years ago, um, she was convinced that we had to take seriously the penetration of capitalist social relations even into um, our experience of love. And she had this term um, property love, which, um, you know, she was quite a serious political economic thinker. Um, and she was trying to map um, the, the, the institution of private property um, into this very difficult terrain of the interpersonal um, and the, and, and the affective almost. Right. And she was, she, she was suggesting that there is something very exclusive and possessive, um, about love under capitalism, whether we, uh, want it or not. Um, and the, 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 the real sort of elusive and almost frustrating thing about this whole topic, um, of abolition of the family is that we might need to consider that um, it's partly not possible for us to desire it fully in um, as we are currently constituted. This is this is maybe this gets a bit heady, you know. <laughs> this is a heady question. Um, I think we can orient ourselves. Um, in utopian directions, we can sort of squint towards a, a, a horizon in which care has been deprivatized via, for example, um, the provision of, you know, food manufacturing facilities, food itself, you know, um, leisure, shelter, health care, therapy, it's, um, you know, educational needs in the in the common or public sphere, uh, which would render the family not something we, you know, um, depend on, um, that we're almost, you know, blackmailed into depending on, but it would, it would have sort of 
almost like <laughs> withered away uh, as an economic function, allowing it to become something freely chosen, right? A terrain of actual freedom. That would be the situation where red love is beginning to blossom. But yeah, there's something so very, very long-term about this, um, this project at almost like at a psychic level, um, uh, you know, Colin Tai was one figure who, who thought about this and how hard it is to envisage a world in which, for example, parenting is, um, is, uh, is less exclusive, right? It's not about the sort of making more of oneself, um, but genuinely about the sort of comradely, um, you know, uh, collective care for children um, in the plural, you know, not not because they are yours, but because they are. Um, that there's something about that that is uh, extremely difficult to project forward into. But that's because you know what really changes us and changes the world is struggle. It's struggle. It's movement. You, you know, there's a sort of role I think for speculative fictions. Um, uh, to, and, and, you know, almost like sci-fi to educate our desire, um, denaturalize things, prompt our critical thinking in certain, in certain respects. But yeah, as the philosopher of anti-work, Kathy Weeks also says, um, there's something so kind of long game-esque about, um, family abolition that we might have to be able to tolerate the possibility that the way we're psychically manufactured in the Oedipal kinship story right now, the way we think of ourselves as the products of a mummy daddy sort of, um, you know, um, production process, like a zero sum game, like, you know, we might not be able to desire the horizon that we are ultimately gesturing towards here yet, yet. Right. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's not worth picking up this thread and um, and advancing it. Right. Paradoxically, that's kind of like a, a thing we might want to do for, you know, for the children. <laughs> you know, like that's something we, we want to do for, the, for you know, and, and we also want to think about family abolition from children's perspective, because children's liberation, quote unquote, um, which is another phrase that has completely disappeared from the radical vocabulary, but was actually kind of in circulation in the in the the nineteen sixty eight moment, the long sixties. You know that is, is a huge part is a huge part of this um, of this revolutionization of of social reproduction. And you write, uh, but wait, the family is in danger, or so legend has it. Kids these days, they won't procreate. They don't look after their folks. They live at home. They don't call home. They don't aspire to home ownership. They won't marry. They don't put family first, and they aren't founding families. Guess what? The family has never not been critically at risk. As, again, you mentioned Melinda Cooper, a past guest on our show, and people can find that interview with Melinda on her book, uh, Family Values Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism, at our website, thisishell.com, when they search on her last name, Cooper. She writes, the history of the family is one of perpetual crisis. And that's you know, it's a bipartisan thing. That's something that you see from Republicans, from Democrats here in the States. It's something that you see from the right and from the left. Liberals would suggest that all of the problems with family 
have to do with a lack of resources? Can all of the problems of the family be fixed with you know, family tax credits and government family aid? Is, is that the way, is that liberal process of addressing the problems they see with family? Is it, uh, can it just be fixed with more resources uh, targeted to the family? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, I I argue, obviously, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be just for the kicks, you know, saying abolish the family if I thought that what what ultimately would be enough would be, you know, taking the pressure off the family or like funding families or something, you know. Uh, in some ways you could argue, like there, there are some ways in which, um, you know, obviously they're not, like, I wouldn't say they're opposed, you know, and, and for, you know, we could also talk about um, the rather wonderful new family code in Cuba um, and the way that, you know, a democratic kind of process has, you know, uh, put in place, um, you know, a whole series of, um, you know, uh, principles, constitutional principles in Cuba, strengthening the rights of children, the rights of different family formats, um, the rights associated with family to be free of domestic violence um, and to, to, to have enough social support, um, you know, and, and how that is, uh, I think, consonant with an ultimately abolitionist aim. But I do think there's, there's something to be said for insisting that, you know, let's say all the, you know, presently over-surveilled, criminalized, you know, underserved, um, you know, purposively sort of abandoned, you know, uh, uh, reproductive workers in American society, or the, or the sort of, so, you know, the mothers, um, the mothers who um, are struggling, right, which is, uh, yeah, a huge part of the reality that we live in, um, the, you know, child protect, child protective services and foster care industries sort of, um, uh, predate on, uh, certain forms of especially racially marginalized, especially, um, sort of, uh, non-heterosexual and, uh, and black, uh, sort of kinship and, uh, uh, um, sort of householding, kinning for, forms of life in American society. And they really, you know, if that was all reversed, right, and um, the state sort of magically just, you know, gave, let's say, um, you know, single black proletarian mothers, you know, um, loads of support and loads of money, I would still say that there is more to do Right. There's more to do for 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 us, um, uh, the, the left, because deprivatizing care uh, goes a little bit further. I, I argue, right, that family abolition is about a truly thoroughgoing effort to make it so that human beings don't need the family, um, and deprivatizing care is is ultimately, yeah. Uh, about that little extra piece um, of questioning the, you know, the the patriarchal institution of, of 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 yeah, you know, not just 
fatherhood, but also motherhood, right? Patriarchal motherhood is is part of what, um, you know, the poet Adrian Rich was talking about when she talked about mothering against motherhood. And there's a really rich um, black radical tradition um, of, of uh, feminists kind of thinking about how mothering becomes um, enlisted in, um, you know, the, 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 the strange webs of private property um, and, uh, you know, social reproduction that manufacture workers with a class, with a sort of docile class identity rather than a class consciousness, how mothering is part of what, um, you know, rather violently conscripts us into um, lives of work, right? Which is not to say, you know, bad, mothers shouldn't do that, right? It's mother's fault. No, 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 no. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that there's no, there's no innocence involved, right? And, and, and it's, of course, extremely important to fight, you know, for the, the boot of the state to get off the neck of black moms, right? I absolutely, and, and by the way, you know, this is central to my book, you know, um, uh, you know, fighting for the state to leave um, migrant uh, kinship forms alone, migrant families, right? And of course, it makes sense in the present to campaign for, you know, quote unquote, keeping families together and quote unquote, stopping family separations, even though here I am arguing again for something a little bit more than that, because I don't think we need to capitulate to the the logic of the, the family. And in fact, I think it's counterproductive. Um, I think we can argue for, for keeping people together and letting, you know, uh, people cross the borders, in fact, abolish the borders, right? <laughs> but I, I, I guess I'm arguing that, yeah, there's still something to, to, to do after we have, um, you know, funded the current reproducers because we actually want to well i am hoping that what we want to do is also to turn the labor of reproduction in a completely different direction to think to think seriously about not reproducing ourselves as workers because that's the tradition of marxism that i'm interested in the self-abolition of the working class qua working class not some kind of vision of a future where the working class is somehow on top because it has insisted on the dignity of work and um you know and work is the only thing ultimately that that we can dream of right i'm i'm sort of yeah i'm sort of hoping that i've i've managed to get across and, and maybe assuage some people's anxieties that I'm talking about separating people and put across the fact that actually the long and beautiful tradition of family abolitionist utopianism is about wondering how people can get together and be together for the first time in history. Just uh, one last question for you, Sophie. First of all, I just want to say I love listening to you speak because it's always I'm just sitting here taking notes because I'm thinking it's just amazing uh, everything that you were just talking about. We're, we have been speaking with writer, theorist and recovering academic Sophie Lewis. 
uh, to discuss her news, new book on the day it is being published, Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. And uh, as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate, hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that my purpose in it, in, uh, you know, uh, the idea of abolishing the family is partly to be sure to clarify and correct the many possible aghast misapprehensions one can easily form about family abolition. For example, that it means forcibly separating people. But ultimately, I don't want to deny that there is something scary, psychologically challenging about this politics. This same scariness is present in all uh, revolutionary politics, in my view. So my question from hell for you is kind of a two-part question. It is a two-part question. Is the, is the biggest obstacle to change the fear of change? How much do you think we exaggerate the fear of revolution, of change? Mm. Yeah, well, um, there was this wonderful review um, of this this little book in the New Statesman recently, and it somehow you know, drew the attention of Fox News. There was like a news story about the fact that someone had written a review of my book, which is a little bit silly, isn't it? My God. Um, <laughs> but they were saying in that the, one of the things they were actually picking up on was this, this question of whether people are indeed, well, the reviewer was saying maybe people aren't so scared. Maybe people are not so scared after several years of you know, COVID-19, maybe people are actually quite willing, you know, to think about shaking up um, our, our, our most sort of intimate um, preconceptions um, about, yeah, about how to live, you know. And so, so I was like really open to that. But yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, of course, um, revolution, I mean, uh, I don't know, Chuck, I'm not being very eloquent. Yeah, I think the most, the, there is an obstacle to change um, uh, in our fear of change. But I also am very um, acquainted uh, myself from experience with the way that when when stu- stuff starts kicking off, when um, when insurgencies hit the streets, when occupations that initially, for example, in my hometown, my adoptive, wonderful city of Philadelphia, people started congregating and staying on the on the boulevard, initially just to think about uh, forcing the city, which they were successful in, um, at, you know, to at providing affordable housing, but then ultimately realizing that, you know, the skills involved in 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 learning how to sh- sort of live together. There was a there was a, a a little medical infrastructure starting up. Uh, by the time the the camp was finally cleared out, months later, there was a shower. There was a kitchen. Of the protest kitchen, by the way, is where my my comrade M. E. O'Brien says the kernel of family abolitionism is, is to be found, right? That's the good and the bad news, you know? <laughs> you cannot abolish the family, uh, you know, on your own in, in your in your, in your your households. You can't do it. It's not, you, you know, and you can't even do it by getting together with a bunch of other people, although I don't recommend that you, you not do this, but you can't get, you know, you can't abolish the family by getting together with your friends and and, and founding a an experimental childcare collective in Vermont or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 in insurgency, and when you are in movement, everything starts feeling different, 
it's it's surprising. What is actually surprising is how readily one can be changed, right? That's also part of it. So uh, just one more question from hell for you, I guess. How much do you think this fear of, you know, change, that we need to be remade as a society and each one of us ourselves, how much does that fear fuel the far right? That fear is the fuel of fascism. Mm, yeah. Well, I suspect, uh, yes, <laughs> in a nutshell, I think, um, yeah, there's something very sort of fearful um, in the fascist psychological mix, for sure. You know, it's worth also pointing out, though, and I, I guess I sort of vaguely intimated this when I talked about how the, um, you know, the male breadwinner household, um, it, it wasn't, you know, it's it's a relatively modern artifact too, you know. It's, uh, it sort of didn't, it was only um, a majority experience for a, a hot second, you know. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, when, when people talk about tradition, they're in fact, you know, nostalgically fantasizing about something that was, um, you know, paradoxically kind of brought about by a socialist struggle, right? <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other historical discussion. But um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, in a certain way, I'm, um, I'm almost a little bit more scared of um, the inaction of liberalism and liberalism's historic tendency to just give birth to fascism, you know, again and again. Um, and it's, and it, I, I'm, I'm almost more scared of liberalism's um, fear of, of change, um, you know. Well, I, I'm not gonna rank my fears because obviously the fascists are, are, the, are the real, you know, are the, are the real visceral bloodthirsty danger we're facing right now and trans children are facing we you know and and um everyone with a, a a uterus is is facing in america right now um but uh yeah there's there's, there's also a willingness to um you know to effect a very violent um change right that uh, that you can see on the far right um, so I don't know, <laughs> as, as I was kind of suggesting earlier, you know, there are some real solutions being offered, um, uh, by, by, by fascists right now, they're terrible solutions, but they are less, um, inadequate to the contradictions of contemporary capitalism than are the, the, the sort of non-solutions being touted by liberalism. Sophie, I really appreciate you being back on the show. Everybody, go check out Sophie's book, Abolish the Family, A Manifesto for Care and Liberation. And you got to see her, you got to read her earlier book too, Full Surrogacy Now Feminism Against Family. You can find our past interview with Sophie at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her last name, Lewis. And Sophie's lectures are archived at lasofiel.org that's l-a-s-o-p-h-i-e-l-l-e dot org and you can follow Sophie on Twitter at reprotopia and also show your support for her work by subscribing at patreon.com slash reprotopia Sophie it's fantastic to hear your voice again you know I'm going to annoy you for the rest of your life for 
to come back on the show over and over again. Whenever you write anything, please get in contact with us. I always love speaking with you. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Chuck, it's a genuine delight, and you flatter the hell out of me. Yeah. I'll always come back. Thank All right. you. All right. Thank you very Take much. Care. And by the way, whoever said you're a blabbermouth, I totally disagree. <laughs> Bless you. Thank right. you. Take care. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. If what you just heard from Sophie Lewis on abolishing the family, if that made you realize that, yes, even when I consider the family... This really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on, you guessed it, support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell. What should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? (laughs) So it's a birthday week question. And the last response was from Wojcik was start playing on one of Carrie's pool teams. Mm, Yeah, I don't want to do that. Um, Warren L. says that you should yell at kids to get off your lawn. <laughs> that sounds good. I should uh, be waving a cane at the same time. <laughs> yes. Benedict S. says, redistribute booze to the underage. <laughs> I like that. Me too. Uh, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? Uh, Patrick R. says, release the Kraken. Oh, Happy God. birthday, Chuck. Yeah, thank you. Uh, George B. says, breathe and smile. Repeat as necessary. Okay. <laughs> I like that one. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> John T. says, be, a, be at least partially in the bag on a regional spirit of the location of his current interviewee, e.g. Eric Arak. Kachaka, Rakia, so I I don't yeah. understand. Sochu, yeah. Soju, Soto, I don't know. Don't know. All right, well. We'll have to translate that. <laughs> Kelly H. says, bask in the joy of knowing that you are loved. Aw, that's sweet. <laughs> We've got quite a few responses here. I haven't even looked at Twitter yet. Um, What should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now he's finally old enough to drink? Sloan T says, go back to bed. I like that one. <laughs> That's very good. That's exceptional. <laughs> Chris H. Hemlock? Question <laughs> mark. Yikes. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Not suicide. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it has some additional qualities. We don't yeah, know like about. death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Yosef's Dorchen says, let's grab a beer and we'll talk triglyceride levels. All right. <laughs> and I think I've actually done that with Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> we still got a handful of them here on uh, Facebook. Should I read one or two more? Uh, how about two more and then we'll uh, save the rest for tomorrow. Okay. Neil C. says, see if your AARP card gets you a discount at the liquor store. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Burn. Uh, wow. Kim, <laughs> Kim K. Oh, sorry. Kim G. says, take a gap year. 
Oh, all right. I'll do that. I'd <laughs> like right. to take a gap decade. So we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on October 3rd, 1963, 59 years ago this week. Military forces in Honduras staged a violent coup d'etat just 10 days before, ske- before scheduled national elections. And really, what better time to stage a coup d'etat than before scheduled national elections? I mean, two months and a few days after an election has already taken place? Eh, that's just not that great of a strategy. The ousted president, Ramon Vileda, or Vieda Morales had uh, pushed for democratic reforms, new labor laws, and improvements in public health, education, and infrastructure. But his agrarian measures, which included expropriation of foreign-owned agricultural land, had been criticized by business interests in the United States. Go figure. Powerful right-wing elements in Honduras had accused him of communist sympathies and also opposed the like-minded candidate who was widely expected to be elected to succeed him. In other words, the U.S. hated communism so much that they were willing to overthrow democracy in order to stop the people from having a voice in the form their government would take. After Vieta Morales was overthrown and exiled to Costa Rica, U.S. President John Kennedy condemned the coup and recalled the U.S. ambassador. But 14 months later, Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, established new ties with the Honduran military government, which would remain in power until 1980. To clarify, Ronaldo, who writes Rotten History, is not saying that Kennedy's denunciation of the Honduran coup was the reason he was assassinated. He's just saying, if you know what I mean. Also in Rotten History, on October 6th, 1976, 46 years ago this week, on the campus of Thammasat University in Bangkok, Thailand, thousands of students and workers were demonstrating against the return to the country of a former dictator, Field Marshal Thanam <laughs> Kitikachorn. Thanam's U.S. backed dictatorship had been overthrown three years earlier after violent protests spread across the country, and his departure had been followed by a transition to a fragile democracy. So that's two U.S. backed dictatorships and one rotten history. Good on you, Ronaldo. But now Thanam was back. He'd arrived in the country wearing a saffron robe, claiming to have become a Buddhist monk and had been personally welcomed home by the king and queen of Thailand. Thanam's return had been engineered by right-wing monarchists in the military who knew it would ignite social disorder, which they planned to use as an excuse for a coup. So that's a twist. On the morning of October 6th, Police and armed paramilitaries launched an assault on the crowd of university protesters, many of whom were lynched on the spot by right-wing supporters of the monarchy who shot, hanged, or burned alive any demonstrator who they could get their hands on, sometimes after abusing them sexually. More than a hundred were murdered and hundreds were more wounded in the aftermath. The king of Thailand appointed a new right-wing dictator. Some 3,000 surviving demonstrators who had been jailed were eventually released and granted amnesty, but no perpetrators of the massacre were ever prosecuted, of course. And one quick uh, correction from last week. Apparently, I thanked Ronaldo Magaldi not for doing all of the writing and research except for the snarky asides of this week in Rotten History, but for doing all of the writing and research of This Is Hell, more generally, of the entire show. Of course, I wish 
Rinaldo was doing all of the writing and research for the entire show because then I would n have nothing to do and my time could be freed up for my many time-consuming vices in which I absolutely love to indulge. Unfortunately, that's not the case, and I'm stuck with doing all that stuff. That is, except for Rotten History. So again, thank you, Ronaldo. That's Rotten History, and this is Hal Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. Tomorrow's guest is legal and advocacy director with Project South and a past president of the National Lawyers Guild, Azadeh Shashahani yes. and Fatema Ahmad, uh, executive director of Muslim Justice League, about their article at the Progressive... Er, it is the progressive. The progressive that's, a, that's a typo on my part. The surveillance state can't solve white supremacy. After the January 6th attack, federal surveillance programs expanded to counter white supremacist violence have made black and brown communities their main target. Who knew that more policing would eventually be turned on people of color? And of course, as always, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter blind blo <laughs> bloke. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show and podcast and live-streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing, and it's great to hear that you have recovered from COVID. Although, if you do have monkeypox, I need to stay away from you. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.